we're sort of, this is the last Sunday of the series we were doing all summer long, and now we're starting a new series next Sunday, which I get to talk about. And the video we just, the little bumper video that was up there, uh, is, is introducing what we're going to be looking at in the next number of weeks called The Story. The Story. Um, when people go to read the Bible, they often don't realize that there's an upper story to the Bible. I mean, they can read the lower stories. The lower stories are easy to read. You read about David and Goliath, and you say, wow, that guy was brave. He trusted God. He defeated the enemy. But they don't realize there's a whole upper story. There's a, there's a, it's just that the, the Bible is a tricky book to understand because of how it's put together. And, and I spent, um, let me just quickly say this. I spent about a couple hours writing an email on Thursday, and it was to a friend. And he had uh, written to me. And he said, I've been listening to the Bible on audio and trying to understand it. And there's all sorts of puzzles, all sorts of questions I have. And I'm not sure about this and that. And why is this and why is that? And, and I realized after I wrote him this lengthy, long email to explain uh, all the different things that I could explain for him, I realized that the challenge is uh, how the Bible is put together. So the Bible is not just a book. It's actually a library. It's 66 different books. And they're different literary styles. Some of them are uh, historical narratives. Some of them are poetry. Some of them are, are like prophecy. Some of them are sort of apocryphal writings. I'm not, no, that's not it. Apocalyptic writings, sorry. That, it's really important to get that right. Anyhow, <laughs> and, and they just, it doesn't read like a summer novel, Right? You know, maybe you had a summer novel this, this summer at the beach or, you know, on your lawn chair or something like that. And you just read through some work of fiction and you're like, oh, that's easy. You know, it was easy to read. It was a real page turner. kept you engaged and you got to the end. And you're, but the Bible doesn't read like that because it's a library. It's a collection. But there is one story to it. And that's what I call the upper story. There is one story to the Bible. That's the upper story. It's the story of God's plan of redemption. How God goes on an all-out pursuit to bring broken, sinful, hurting people back to himself. That's the, the upper story. And so I'm writing this email, pounding out this email to my friend, and I'm talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament and all these nuances and difficult. But I realized at the end, I'm just explaining to him the upper story. He's reading all these individual stories and saying, boy, this Bible is full of a lot of different stories and accounts. But he's missing the overarching story. And I think, you know, that can be real about our lives too. We go, well, I'm experiencing this, and this is happening in my life, and then this happened in my life, and this. And it's like, is there any sense or meaning or rhyme to any of this at all? Well, God sees the upper story. And, in fact, he doesn't want to keep the upper story hidden from us. In fact, he was so intent on us not uh, missing the upper story that he gave us his word. That's why we have, that's one of the main reasons we have the Bible, is so that we can understand God's plan of redemption that starts at Genesis in the beginning and goes to Revelation. And so we're going to uh, go on an adventure, a significant adventure together as a church in the next number of weeks, a year of incredible engagement with the Bible. And um, I was uh, at the Worldwide Pentecostal Conference in Calgary like a week and a half ago, and while I was there... Um, I heard many amazing stories. God is doing amazing things. In all the, there were 74 different nations represented. There's 3,500 delegates in the Telecenter in Calgary. It was, uh, it was an amazing event. And we heard stories from all over the world. But 
you know, this one just I want to share with you this morning. It was just a tiny story, but it caught my attention. And it wasn't, it was a Korean businessman who works uh, on Wall Street. So he's, he's, he's there in New York. I guess that's where Wall Street is, right? He works on Wall Street, and he's, he's uh, in the thick of all of that, you know, you know, stocks and, and, and empire building and all that stuff. And he started a practice. And his practice was uh, he, he emailed a bunch of his associates, people who'd be millionaires and billionaires, and he just said, I'm going to start every week to, to gather people together for the public reading of the Bible. And that's what we're going to do. We're just going to come and we're just going to listen to the Bible being read. And you think, well, who would go to that? Well, evidently, it just caught on like wildfire. And so now you've got these millionaires and billionaires and empire builders. They're coming together and they're, they're just sitting there as the Bible is read. You know, Paul said to Timothy, don't neglect the public reading of Scripture. And we're going to do that in the, in the season to come. We're going to read the Scripture on our own. We're going to read the Scripture together. We're going to read it as a big church-wide. Because I think there's going to be uh, a powerful work in our lives if we really give attention to the Bible. Uh, another thing I heard from this conference was that in the United States, uh, there's a big push on to make 2020 a year of the Bible uh, amongst many uh, organizations and, and groups there. And um, so here at Hillcrest, we're ahead of the curve. It's 2019. And this will be a bit of a year of the Bible for us as a church. So here's the question. How can we help people walk together in reading the Bible, but make sure that they come to upper, understand the upper story? Because that's what my friend was struggling with. He was hearing the Bible. He was listening to it on audio. He was, he was uh, hearing it being read, but he wasn't understanding the upper story. And so he was puzzled. And so then my email was all about trying to explain the upper story. And so I thought, said, instead of me emailing each of you individually for two hours each email, I would love it if our church all just came to understand, just had a, a, a brand new understanding, not Many, many already would maybe understand, but we're all on the same page of understanding the upper story of God. And then I think it's going to do two things. When you read the Bible, you'll see the, the lower stories, individual stories, and you'll be able to connect them to the upper story. But then the other big one is you'll be able to take your own story, your own life, where, you're, where you live, where you eat, breathe, work, sleep, go to school, and you'll be able to connect it to the upper story of God as well. Because you are a character in God's story. It's his story, but you're called to play a role. So, just quickly, what the resource we're going to use. I'm going to just talk about this quickly. This is the story. That's what it's called. It's, uh, you say, what's it made up of? Well, almost entirely, it's made up of scripture. It's basically just scripture. Now, there's a tiny little bit of commentary in it, and that's helpful. And I'll, I'll mention a bit more about that in a sec. But basically, it's just scripture. So um, I would encourage you, we've got them at the table at the back. If, if you, one per family, right? So take one home. And um, there's a few different things we're going to do to help people get the most out of uh, reading through this Bible reading plan that the story is. It's not the whole Bible, right? If you had to read the whole Bible in a year... You have to read like four to six chapters a day, uh, mini chapters. Remember, chapters in the Bible are smaller than chapters in a novel, right? But that's how much you'd have to read every single day to get through, through uh, a year, of, uh, read the Bible in a year. 
This is less than that. This is probably reading about, you know, uh, six to eight chapters in a week. Okay, so it's much, it's, it's less. But it's, it's um, I think this is going to work for, in two ways. One, some of you, you already read, you're on a read through the Bible in a year plan. And all I'm going to ask you to do is just add one more sit down to read the Bible in your week. Because that's all it's going to take. I, the first reading, I sat down and read it in one sitting. And because they've edited it in such a way that you can read it a little bit more like a novel, it really worked for me. I read it in just like one sitting, and I was like, that was great. I'm glad I just read that, that section. I did that. So if you're already, you know, you say, I already, you know, God's graced me and blessed me, and I've already got to that point in my life where I have a discipline of reading the Bible, and I'm reading already with a plan. I'm just asking you to add one more sit down in the week. That's what I'm asking you to do. But so now I'm going to talk to everybody else. There's lots of us in the room who say, I love to read the Bible. I love the Bible. I think it's great. But yet at the same time, I've not succeeded with this. Or I was succeeding with it, but then stopped. I was on a Bible reading plan and I quit. And you know what? We're not going to worry about the, what's in the past. We're just going to talk about what's in the future, right? And that is, if you start now and do one sit down a week, or maybe you want to break it up into a few, uh, that's fine. Uh, you can get through uh, from now until Easter, the upper story of the Bible. So there's some things you won't read. You won't get to read all the genealogies. I know you'll be disappointed about that. You might not get to read a lot of Leviticus. That's okay. You can read that on your own time, right? There's a lot of things. They're all good things in the Bible. But we just want to say we want people to understand the upper story of the Bible, and we want greater engagement with the Bible. So we're actually asking everybody to step into a greater engagement with reading the Word of God. But we're going to do it together. You know, together is the secret sauce for accomplishing what you want in life. I've noticed this so many times. Like, I never, ever went to a, a gym to work out until my friend Terry said, hey, come with me to the gym. And I said, no, no, I don't want to go to the gym. I don't know, what this, I don't know what, how it works there. I don't know, like, I'd embarrass myself. I, I don't know what you're supposed to do. Like, you walk in there, and, you know, you see some of these hulking guys in there, and you're like, oh, no, no, no. It's, it's bad enough not knowing what you do, but that guy's going to make fun of me. Like, that, I don't want, no, I don't want to go be here, Terry. But Terry, walk me through it, you know. You know, don't clank the weights, Steve, and, and clean up after yourself, and wipe down the bar, and, uh, and this is how you do this, and this is how you do that. And, and eventually I was like, hey, this works for me. And then on top of that, it was like Terry phoning me. Hey, let's go today. Hey, let's go today. And I was like, I'm working out. Look at me. Look at me. This is exciting. It's like anything in life. A group or people together is the secret sauce. So I, I'd encourage you to, here's, here's three levels of engagement. One, read the story. We're giving you the book for free. Read it. Uh, I'll show you. I, was, I just went hog wild with my highlighter when I was reading the story. I just had so much fun just marking it up. Because, you, know, you know, there's something about your, your, the Bible Bible. You feel like, oh, I don't know if I want to write in it. But this, I just felt a liberty to write in it. It was great. I still have a Bible that's the full thing. But I just felt great about this. This is sort of like when Marnie and I were dating. I, used to, I read a ton of marriage books then. I just, because I was sort of interested in myself, I guess. Anyhow, and so I just read tons of marriage books, and I would read them, and I would highlight them, and mark them up, and write things in the margins, and then Marnie, who I was dating, would say, was that a good book? I'd say, yeah, that was a really good book. She'd go, can I borrow it? I'm like, 
sure. So I'd borrow it. Well, now she's reading it, but she's also noticing everything I highlighted. She's like, why did he highlight that? And she's starting to think, I don't know if a life together with this guy is a good idea. So she'd be phoning me at night. Why did you highlight on page 23 this phrase? And I'm like, oh, and so I'm explaining myself. It was really fun. And uh, so this is my advice. One of these books per family. So you're saying, oh, that means I have to share with my spouse. Here's what you do. Read it first. Highlight it like crazy. And you'll totally destabilize them. It's awesome. <laughs> they, you know. Anyhow, maybe I don't like that suggestion, but it's funny. Just be the one to read it first. All right. So read the, read the story. That's the first thing. Second, all our life groups are going to be reading the story and getting together to talk about the Bible. To get together to talk about what they've read. So that's where our life goes. So if you're in a life group, now's a family feast day. You can find your life group over lunch and say, hey, are we still getting back together? Are we, you know, getting the band back together? Do that today. Right? Or you haven't joined a life group. Go to the info desk and, and say, I'd like to be a part of life group. I'm, I'm, I'm free Monday nights, Tuesday nights, and Thursday nights. And, and just put me in a group. I'd love to be with people who are reading the Bible who I can discuss. And I want the secret sauce that helps me win in my desire to read the Bible more. And the final thing is track with the messages we're going to be teaching through. So whatever you read in the story and whatever life groups discuss in, the, in their time together, we're going to be talking about every week when we preach here on Sunday morning. So those, we want to help people win, and we really believe uh, that this could be a great blessing to you. There's a story in, uh, in the Bible, one of the smaller, lower stories that has a great connection to the upper story, and it's found in Acts 8.28. Acts 8.28, and it's the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, who was a high government official uh, in uh, the Ethiopian government and had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And this is what it says. On his way home, he was sitting in his car. Oh, no. He was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. So he's reading a part of the Bible. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot. So Philip was a follower of Jesus. The Ethiopian eunuch wasn't. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So Philip ran up to the chariot and just sort of, I don't know, nonchalantly hung out. I'm not sure what he did. But he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. There is, you know, in this book, there is a little bit of commentary every now and again to just make sure you're tracking with the overarching story of the Bible. That's really helpful. It's just like the email I was writing to my friend. Oh, here's the things that help connect the dots for you. Right? And that's what Philip does here. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone explains it to me? And you might have felt that way many times with the Bible. I don't get what's going on here. Or I don't know why this, this seems strange. There's lots of things like that in the Bible. How can I unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. 
So that's what we want to do through all the passages of Scripture in the Bible is we want to start with these lower stories that seem disconnected and seem like they're sort of standalone one-offs and show how and come to see how these are a part of God revealing himself to us as the great rescuer of humankind, as the one who wants to redeem us and bring us back into a relationship with him. The lower story and the upper story. And so we just believe that over this year, we're going to get to see what God sees. I mean, not everything. His, his ways are still higher, as we sang, than our ways. But we, we want to know what God wanted to reveal to us through the Bible. All right. So, that's just a total plug for next week. And now I've still got to preach a sermon in 10 minutes. All right. Everybody pray silently right now. Matthew 7. Let's just read it. This is the last few verses. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I just want to start with that last verse because I think that's what I want to explain first because you, want, you need to get this about the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people hear the Sermon on the Mount. We've been listening to it for now for um, many weeks Lots of people contributed on different, the different sections of the Sermon on the Mount, but the thing I want you to get at the end that you don't want to miss is the relationship of the actual teacher of the Sermon on the Mount to the teaching. I think last week probably uh, was one of the best uh, sort of moments of spelling it out when uh, Chris was reading through the part. It says, you know, you're going to come to that last day of judgment, stand before God, and you're going to say to Jesus... Lord, Lord, this is what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? Here's the thing that people often miss with the Sermon on the Mount. They say, wow, Jesus is a good teacher. That's true. That's good. Um, lots about love and, and, and uh, not condemning your neighbor and, you know, lots of different, I mean, there's a million teachings in there, lots of stuff in there. And uh, it's just really great. And I love the Sermon on the Mount. The only problem is a lot of people love the Sermon on the Mount but if they really drill down into it, they are um, confronted with the fact that Je- of who Jesus says he is in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that one day you'll stand before God and you'll appeal to Jesus about your life. Jesus said, it's, it's right for people to call me Lord. So when people say, I love that Jesus was a teacher of just loving ethics. Nope, missed it. You didn't read it all. You missed the point. He was explaining, there, I'm establishing a new kingdom. And this new kingdom, which this is how the subjects of this kingdom will live, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is teaching, has a king. And it's me. So that's the reality that you can't miss with the Sermon on the Mount. If you miss it, you'll be like a lot of people who missed it throughout the centuries, who've read it and thought, good teaching. Not bad. This, this Jesus, he's a pretty good teacher. No. 
He's the Lord of glory, the creator of the universe, the judge of all humankind. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. And you say, well, I don't want him to be that. I just want him to be that. He, won't. he doesn't give you the option. He doesn't give you the option. And in the Sermon on the Mount, that which people love to quote and people love to pass on and say, yeah, it's just, you know, just follow these general teachings. It's more than that. It's more than that. You have to recognize the authority of the teacher. And that's what these last, this is what struck people at the end. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So a normal teacher of the law would say things like, well, Rabbi such and such said this, and Rabbi such and such added some commentary to that. And let me piece that together for you so that you understand the normal teachings on this passage of Scripture. And Jesus said, you have heard such and such, but I tell you. That's authority. The other teachers was like, well, I'm a commentator on these scriptures. He's saying, no, I am the fulfillment of those scriptures. So it's the thing that you, I just want to point it out because I, do, I can't. Because lots of people love the Sermon on the Mount or parts of it, right? But then you can't miss who the teacher is, that he's the Lord of all. And he's the one with ultimate authority on the earth. Now let's talk about the wise and the foolish builders. I have a, we just bought a new house this summer. We moved from our, our house on Staticona, and now we live up in Sunningdale in this nice little house. And uh, well, it's a bigger house, actually. That's why we bought it, because it worked well with our smaller family to have a smaller house. Now we have a bigger house. And when we were getting the house inspected, the house inspector was pointing out to us points on the main floor where there were cracks in the ceiling. And my thought was, oh, cracks in the ceiling. Okay, well, I guess we've got to do a bit of plaster there and paint, and it'll be good. But then the inspector took me down to the basement, and that's what happens in Moose Jaw, right? You fall in love with the main floor and the upper floor, and then the realtor takes you down to the basement. And you go, oh, I'm not buying this house. Well, you fell in love with it. What's the deal? Basements matter in Moose Jaw and other places too, but it matters. Anyhow, so he took, they took me down to the basement, and they said, you know, see this wall in the middle of your basement? It's not the outside wall but it's actually the middle wall. It should be a floating wall. I didn't even, floating wall, it sounds magic. I didn't even know that was a thing. So it's floating wall, it should be a floating wall, but it's not floating, and so when things shift, it pushes up on the upper part of your building, and that's why the cracks appear. I was like, oh, so I gotta fix this before I fix that, which is really important to notice. You know, if you don't fix your foundation, you're always gonna be dealing with cracks. That's the reality. If you don't fix your foundation, you're always going to be dealing with cracks. If you don't fix what's underneath, it doesn't matter what's on the surface. It doesn't matter what's up above. Uh, what's underneath is what really matters. And I think Jesus is teaching that. Jesus is teaching this. He's talking about the different foundations. A house built on sand, a house built on rock. I had coffee with a friend this week. A great friend. Hadn't seen him for a lot of years. Sat down. And a lot of the coffee was telling a tale of woe. He'd been through some tough circumstances, really tough circumstances. Uh, I wouldn't want anyone to go through much of what he's went through. I just was like, oh, those are really hard circumstances. As he's telling his, his tale of woe and he's telling about the areas in his life where he hurt, right? He's presenting his felt need. He hurts here. He hurts there. I was um, telling myself, okay, help him in that area. Help him in that area. Encourage him in that area. Give him perspective in this. He's a young man, younger than me. So, and, you know, I've known him for a lot of years. So I... 
I got at least 20 years on him so I could give him some perspective. So I was trying to help him in all these areas. But then when I left the conversation, um, I had a revelation in my head and the other one was something that made me feel better. The revelation was, you know what? Until the foundation is fixed, he's going to keep seeing cracks in his life. And what now all I'm doing is putting plaster and paint on stuff. I mean, I should still do that because that's the felt need he's feeling right now and I want to bless him. But he needs some foundation work done in his life because there's some undergirding ideas and suppositions and things that are actually causing the cracks above. Now, the thing that encouraged me was at the very end of our conversation, he said, you know what? You know, he's, he, uh, he said, I'm going to check out this church and I'm going to go to their young adults group that meets midweek. And I was like, do that. Do that, do that, do I just affirmed it in every which way I could. That's the, that's the thing you should do because I thought that's going to possibly help him to rebuild or re-pour a foundation in his life that will help him long term. You ever see um, them building skyscrapers in big cities, right? It's very interesting because uh, initially, like, uh, well, Regina might be a great example, right? They had that one project they were going to build and then it didn't get built and didn't get built and didn't get built and then they were like, you got to fill it in. But it's like a you can tell how big the project is by how deep down they, di they dig, right? You walk up and you go, well, that is a significant hole in the ground. This will be a big skyscraper, right? This is going to be a big building. You don't need a significant hole in the ground and pour all the, you know, put all the rebar and foundation and all those things. You don't need a big foundation if you're just building a chicken coop, right? If you're just going to build a little shanty or a little tiny house, you don't need a super big foundation. But the bigger the building, the deeper down you need to go. And I think it just talks about the transformation. Jesus is talking about practicing his teaching. And now how that is like, in a way, building a big foundation, putting your house on a rock. It's solid. I mean, a lot of people, they, they want a life that's great and glorious, like a skyscraper. You know, they want a skyscraper life. They want a, a skyscraper marriage. They want a skyscraper... I'd like to have a skyscraper church. Not that it's in a skyscraper, but, you know, I want it to, to be strong and, 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 and great and really effective and, and powerful. I mean, people want a skyscraper society, Right? What if Moose Jaw was just really thriving and flourishing in, in every way? Well, you know what? You, you can't build that on a chicken coop foundation. You can't build that without digging down deep first. You can't build that by putting some sterner stuff under you. And Jesus said, it's actually hearing my teachings and putting them into practice that pours the deeper foundation. That's what pours the deeper foundation in your life. Let's look back at this passage again. The, you've got two men. A wise man builds his house on the rock, and you've got a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. You know what? Both men want to build a house. Right? Both men want to fill, build a house. I mentioned four areas. You might want to just, your life as an individual might be the house you're building. Your, your life as a family together or your marriage might be the house that you really want to build. It might be uh, something you're doing in, in society. But what are you going to build it on? What's going to be the foundation that undergirds them? Both men wants to build a, want to build a house. 
And then both men heard Jesus teach. Jesus is saying, this is a, Jesus is doing this sermon and he's speaking to his audience. Some of these people are his disciples and some of these people are just a crowd listening. So he's appealing to them. Some of you are going to hear this. You're going to put what I taught you into practice and it's going to be a foundation building thing in your life. Some of you are going to hear this and you're not going to put it into practice and it's like you're going to have no foundation. So you don't get any points for hearing it. Hearing it is not a foundation. You must put it into practice for it to be foundational and for it to undergird your life. So both men wanted to build a house. Both men heard Jesus teaching and both men endured the same storm. Man, in Saskatchewan, we know about storms. I mean, you don't have to watch about uh, Hurricane Dorian on TV to understand storms. We had some wild storms this summer. Right, that plow wind that hit Eston, Saskatchewan. I have a sister who lives there. I went up there and walked on that one edge of town where the wind hit first, and it's just like all the vinyl siding is shredded like it was confetti. It's just shredded. It's amazing. One woman's house, her roof blew off and hit the next person's house. Now that's a powerful wind. That's a powerful wind. Everyone in town pretty much has some sort of damage. Uh, you know replacing their shingles and everything. And uh, Mississippi, right? They got this huge hailstorm this summer. All those cottages that were there just came down. I saw a video. Someone showed me a video the other day of just this hailstorm just coming down. Oh my, it looked like a blizzard. It looked like a blizzard. It was so thick and so white, you thought, oh, this is a winter scene. No, it's not. This is the middle of summer, and this hail is coming down so thick and so fast, it's like smashing through those resin picnic tables, smashing through them. Whoa, pretty powerful stuff. But, I mean, you don't need to talk about weather storms to understand having a storm, right? Jesus is talking about the storm comes. The storm comes, right? We, if you've lived long enough, you've endured a storm in your life. Maybe big, 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 maybe medium-sized, maybe small, but you've endured a storm. You've had those seasons where it's been very difficult. I wanna, there's a guy in the Bible named Job, and he endured a huge storm. And I'll just read you a few verses. And this is an interesting story. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. And the man was blameless and upright, and he feared God, and he shunned evil. So a good guy. And then verse 5 says, when a period of feasting had run its course, so his kids would get together and they'd have these big feasts, just family feasts, just like we're doing today. Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. He just wanted to always make sure his kids were in the right place with God. And early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Then it goes on, and it tells this very interesting exchange that's happening in the upper story. It says, then the Lord said to Satan, so God and the devil are having a conversation. This is really interesting. Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And here's the answer. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Whoa. 
What happens when the storm comes? What happens when the storm comes? Here's the gambit. If you get Job in as big a storm as possible, if you, if you take away everything you've blessed him with, he'll curse you. Because Job, Satan is accusing, Job is just about the blessing. He's not about you, God. He doesn't love you. You're not his treasure. You're not the most important thing in his life. You've given him a great family. You've given him lots of livestock. He's a wealthy man. You've given him all this blessing. That's what he's about. He's accusing Job of idolatry to actually that he's using God to get stuff and a great life. Is it true? If the story ends there, nobody knows. Satan makes an accusation and nobody knows the truth, but the storm comes. And uh, there's all sorts of devastation in Job's life financially and with family. And I'll just skip to the end. Verse 20 says this, at this, Job has lost everything. Job got up and he tore his robe, which was a sign of uh, mourning in those days, and shaved his head, again, another sign. And then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. How do you know what foundation you're built on? The storm will reveal it. That's Jesus' teaching. When the storm comes, the foundation you built your life on will be revealed. It will be revealed. And you won't know the difference until then. See two men and you say they're both building a life. They're both, and they both seem like it's all the same material. But it's when the storm comes. When adversity comes so fierce and so fast, that's when you know. That's when what you've been building on will be revealed. So one man was wise and Jesus said the other man was a fool. And what's the difference between being wise and foolish? Wisdom in the Bible, wisdom in the Bible, I'm going to give you a definition. It's not mine. I stole it from Tony Evans. It's a great definition. Wisdom in the Bible is the ability and decision to apply biblical truth to life's realities. Let me say it again. Wisdom in the Bible is the ability and decision. So it's not that you can, but you do, to apply biblical truth to life's realities. So what does it mean to be a fool? Well, foolishness in the Bible is the inability and the refusal to apply biblical truth to life's realities. And that's what Jesus says. That's what he says. Here are some people that have heard my teaching, but they didn't apply it to their lives. What category did they fall in? The foolish. And here are some people that they heard my teaching, and they began to apply it to every area of their life. They took Something like the Sermon on the Mountain. They start working it through. What does it look like to love my neighbor, to love my enemy? What does it look like uh, to not live in, ju- live in judging con- condemnation of others? But actually working on my own life so I can help them with that speck in their eye. What does it look like? The wise one begins to do the application. The foolish one just listens and walks away and is unchanged. No foundation built in their life. So let me tell you one story of foolishness from the Bible, and then I've got one story to finish it up. So what does it look like when you're acting like a fool? 
What does it look like when a Christian is acting like a fool? Okay, let's be specific. Okay, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Okay, I'll give you the context. Here is Peter. He has, uh, he's a Jew, but he's, been, he's become a follower of Jesus, and he's had several things that could help him get pointed in the right direction. Actually, pretty big, miraculous things. I mean, obviously, Jesus' death and then rising again. Jesus restores him, even though he, can, even though he denied Jesus. Jesus restores him. And then he's, he's, he's excited to spread the message of Jesus locally amongst his own Jewish friend, or, I mean, the Jewish community. But he hasn't gone further. And you know, in, way back in the Old Testament, God gives this great big hint about his plan when he blesses Abraham and he says, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you, Abraham. Basically, that the Jewish people and the descendants, out of that would come great blessing for the nations. Now, obviously, that points with very directly to Jesus, that Jesus coming out of the Jewish nation would be that great blessing for the nations. So if Peter had just paid attention to that, he would have got on the fact that he should not be racist and that he should care about people who weren't Jews, which were called the Gentiles. But God was even more gracious than that. He's sleeping one day, and or no, he was not sleeping because it was a vision. He has a vision, and here comes this, this net comes down, and it's full of food. But it's all the food that Jewish people don't eat. You know, squid and pig and you know, bacon, whatever. It's all in there. Calamari and bacon? Wow, those are good things. Anyhow, they're in there, and he says, no, no. God says, rise up and eat. And he says, no, that's unclean. Like in the Old Testament, it says it's unclean. Of course, that law was to set them apart. It was a law to show that they were to be God's representatives or God's special people in the earth that whole nations would look at and go, whoa, this God is different. Anyhow, long story, I'm really shortening it. So here he is. He's having this vision, and God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And what God means by that is the people who aren't Jewish, that you don't like or that you don't think the gospel applies to or you don't think the good news about Jesus needs to go to, it needs to go to them. And he wakes up, someone's knocking at his door, and it's a representative of Gentile people who are wanting to know the gospel. Will you come to our house? And instead of saying, no, I don't want to go to your house, he goes, he engages with them, and they become followers of Jesus as well. So Peter's had all of this, and then we get to this story. We think, oh, Peter's been cured of his racism. Peter's been cured of his, his stubbornness in this area, but you know he hasn't. I don't know if you're, you've experienced that in your life where you keep flubbing up in the same area. He's eating with Gentiles. He's gotten to that point. I don't know if he's having, like, you know, bacon, tomato, lettuce, sandwich, whatever, but he's eating with Gentiles, and a whole bunch of Jewish buddies come in who are more staunchly reserved in the Jewish tradition, and they see what he is doing, that he's eating with these Gentiles, and so he feels pressure, and he caves. And so he dis detaches himself from his Gentile friends, and he refuses to eat with them, and he goes over to be with his Jewish buddies. And not only Peter, but a whole bunch of other Christians do the same thing. And even Barnabas, who didn't even grow up in Jerusalem, he grew up in an area where um, most, where he would have hung out more with Gentiles. Even he, the son of encouragement, that was Barnabas, such a great guy, even he fell for the pressure. 
So Paul comes along, and this is what the, the chapter says. When Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is another name for Peter, what did Paul do? He sat him down and talked to him about race relations. No, no, no. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. <laughs> this is a pretty harsh rebuke. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That was his pressure group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And here's the punchline. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And it goes on, and Peter gets what he deserves. He's saying, you've heard the teachings of Jesus. Go into all the nations and preach the Gospels. You know what God said to Abraham, that through our nation the world will be blessed, and you are holding yourself back from engaging with that world. Shame on you, Peter. You're in the wrong. And specifically, you're in the wrong because you're not acting in line with what Jesus taught you. You're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. You, in this moment, are building a sandy foundation under your life. You're not situating yourself on the rock. And that cannot be. How many points in our lives do we need? I mean, I don't know. Most people wouldn't want a Paul to confront us like that. But honestly, to see, wait a second, I'm not acting in line with the teachings of Jesus. My life, I've, I've heard the teaching of Jesus. I maybe have memorized the teaching of Jesus. I maybe can regurgitate it to somebody else, but I'm not actually acting in line. I'm not putting into practice the words of Christ. And because I'm not, I'm not acting in line with the gospel. I'm out of line, and I'm actually, it's a sandy foundation, not a solid foundation underneath my feet. See, our foundation is not just your knowledge of the word of God, but our foundation is the knowledge of the word of God that we have acted on. That's what Jesus is teaching. Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you two. Note one. I'm probably, let's see, I would have been 20, 21, and I traveled to England, and uh, we were working with a church. I, I was on this team that was doing stuff in England, working in the schools, and, uh, and then holding events on the weekend with churches, and, and um, we were working with this one church, and we heard sort of midweek in this one church that there was this couple that um, had just had a baby, but that baby... Uh, was in serious health and a danger of their health. They, it looked like they might die. So the whole church called a time of, of fasting and prayer. And so we were working with this church. We just joined in. And so it's sort of like this became part of our mission. We'd gone to England to do many things, but this just became part. And so we're praying every day for this little baby and, and praying, Lord, Spare this baby's life. And, you know, why would we pray that way? Well, because we've had faith. We've seen God work in other ways. We've seen him work in, in our lives. We know that he can answer prayer. He does answer prayer. Now, he, does, he isn't obligated to always answer the way we want. But we were praying. We were just really pressing in all that week with God, pressing in all that week. 
And then the news came at the end of the week. The baby had died. Well, next day is Sunday. And we all come together as a church. Everybody's been part of this, crying out to God, and God, save the life of this baby. And there's the devastated couple. Now, you have to, it's just a picture. He's a very tall black man, and she's a very short black woman. Like, you know, two or three feet between their heights. This is the couple who had had this baby that had died. And they're in the service. And everybody's just in agony over what's happened, and everyone's been so invested, and we're all so sad. And at the end of the service, the leaders of the church said, we're going to call this couple up. We're just going to gather around them and pray for them. And uh, so they called them up. And uh, we hadn't, I don't think we'd gotten to the point where we were praying for them yet. But they, they got up to the front of the church. And uh, this really tall guy just put his arm around his wife and started to sing on his own. Not the song we were singing we weren't singing a song. He just sang on his own. And this is what he sang. He said, for you are high and lifted up. He's talking about God. The glory of the nations, you are high and lifted up. The Lord of all the earth, you are high and lifted up. Creator, redeemer, I give my life to worship you. I'm a mess. I'm sitting in my bench in that church. I'm a mess, mess, mess. I'm like, how do you do that? What kind of foundation do you have under you to be there when the worst kind of storm you could possibly imagine hits your life? How do you have that? I want that. I want what he has. I want what she has. I want what... I know they're going to go through pain and sorrow and grieving and all that, but I want that. I want when the storm hits my life so hard that there's such a deep foundation underneath that I comfort myself around the cross. That's what I want. I'm 21, 20 at the time, probably when this is happening, and I'm just looking at this man and saying, God, give me what he has. Please give me what he has. Everybody should have what he has. Everybody should have such a foundation so that when the storm hits so hard, when the storm is relentless and the adversity is so painful that their house doesn't collapse, but they, they can stand. Would you stand with me today? Worship team, come on back. We're going to go on a journey as a church. I think it's going to play a role in forming your foundation, a stronger foundation in your life. But I think you have to choose it. You have to choose to hear the words of Christ. That, that's essential, but you have to take it a further step and you have to actually put it into practice. You actually, actually have to put it into practice. It's not enough to know what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. It's got to be put into practice. You've got to actually ask yourself, Am I doing these things that Jesus taught? Am I actually putting them into practice? Is my life changing? And we do all these things because we trust him. We do all these things because we trust him. We trust that his prescription for our lives is the best prescription we could possibly have. 
His description of how we should live is the best way possible for it. We don't do this just because, hey, that's sort of neat teaching. No, we trust that he's the Lord of all. He's the one at the end who's going to give us a scorecard for life. And he's telling us right now, he says, this is the playbook. This is how it's going to work out. This is how you can be a citizen of my kingdom. This is how you can respond to me as your king. And that's really what I'm asking you for this morning. I'm asking you to respond to Jesus as your king. For some of you, that might be a first-time decision. You say, you know what? I've sort of known about Jesus, or I've sort of been around people who are people of Jesus, but I haven't actually crossed that line of faith to say, I'm yours. I belong to you. Lead me. Guide me. Dictate the terms for my life. And you can make that decision today. You can just make that decision today, just very simply. It's a powerful decision. It's a powerful moment. But maybe you've come to that point and you're ready to do that. I want to just lead you in a prayer together. It's a prayer that anybody could pray any day. Any follower of Jesus could pray it any day. Anyone could follow. But it's a prayer of commitment. And I'm going to say it and I'm going to ask you to repeat. If, you, if you'd all do it together, that would be really wonderful. Dear Father, thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Lord, we just ask, show us any area. You don't need to repeat this part. Just show us any area, Lord, in our lives where we have heard but not changed. We've heard but not acted. We've heard but not put it into practice. Show us the sandy areas of our foundation. We don't want anything that would cause our house to collapse. We want to be able to stand in the storm. No matter how much the storm buffets us, we want to be able to stand firm on the rock that you are. In your name.